Good morning. It is great to be together as we spend time in our second installment of the spiritual disciplines. You know, today we, we are going to be looking at the disciplines of study and simplicity from our source text, uh, The Celebration of Disciplines, written by uh, Mr. Richard J. Foster. Uh, before we get into the lesson today, let us go before our Father in heaven in prayer. Great Almighty God, we come before you grateful for your love, your mercy, your grace, and your many, many blessings, Father. Thank you so much for these disciplines that you teach us, that allow us to draw nearer to you, Father. And I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, that it inspires us to deepen our, our walk with you, to deepen our, our relationship with you, Father, and by extension, our relationship with, with each other. God, uh, be with me as I as I share today. I pray that it 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 meets with open hearts and open minds, uh, so that indeed your word will glorify your name in all things. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, in Hebrews chapter twelve and verse eleven, the Bible says to us uh, an important uh, statement about discipline. It says, "No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful." Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, the purpose of the spiritual disciplines is the total transformation of the human being. Are you with me right here? You know, the disciplines uh, have the aim at replacing old destructive habits in our being uh, and and and. And get the opportunity to put in some new life-giving habits. You know, I believe um, this can be achieved through uh, the first discipline that we will look at today. You know, that's the discipline of study. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And the mind is renewed by applying it to those things that will transform it. You know, Paul says, you know, finally, brothers and sisters, uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, the, the discipline of study is the primary vehicle, I believe, to bring us to think about these things. You know, many people, even Christians, remain in bondage to fears and anxieties simply because they do not avail themselves to the discipline of study. You know, we may be faithful in church attendance. We may be here every week and earnest in fulfilling our religious duties. And still, we may not be changed in our habits and in our living. You know, we may sing with great enthusiasm and have the best voices and thoroughly enjoy our singing. And we may live lives as obediently as we know how. But yet still there are areas in our lives that remain unchanged. Why? Because we have never taken up uh, one of the most central ways that God has for us to change. Which is deep study of his word. You know, Jesus made it unmistakably clear that the knowledge of the truth is what will set us free in John chapter 8 and verses uh, 32. You know, good feelings, although they feel good, will not free us. 
You know, ecstatic experiences will not free us. You know, getting high on Jesus <laughs> will not free us. Without a knowledge of the truth, we will not be free. The principle is true in every area of our lives. You know, it is true in biology and true in mathematics. It is true in our marriages and other human relationships. But especially true with reference to the spiritual life. You know, let us therefore apply ourselves to learning what constitutes the spiritual discipline of study, to identify its pitfalls, to practice it with joy, and to experience the liberation that indeed it will bring. You know what is study? You know, the Old Testament instructed the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 to 20. Uh, the words say, you know, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking uh, about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You know, the purpose of this instruction was to direct the mind repeatedly and regularly towards certain modes of thoughts about God and about human relationships. You know, the New Testament replaces laws written on the doorposts and laws written on the, uh, and, and, and laws written at different, on different places with laws written on the heart so that we are led to Jesus, our ever present teacher who is with us. Are you with me right here? You know, we, when we, when we make a decision to, 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 to study and when we make that decision to focus on God's word, you know, it begins to form new habits in our mind, new thinking uh, in, 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 in our brain cells. You know, which is why Paul urges us to focus on things that are true, to focus on things that are honorable, to focus on things that are, are pure and lovely and gracious. Because when we get our mind into it and we commit ourselves to studying it, then we will see changes in our lives. You know, the process that occurs in study is a little bit different to meditation. You know, meditation is, is devotional. Study is analytical. Meditation will relish a word as I, as I shared last week. You know, study will analyze it and develop it into some detail. You know, although uh, meditation and study often overlap, they constitute two different distinct experiences. You know, study if you put it this way, provides a, a framework within which meditation can be successful for you. I'm going to share a couple of steps here uh, that, that are involved in study. You know, and I share some of these with, with my children over the, over the last couple of weeks. You know, uh, the first of all, a very important step in study is repetition. And this is some, some deep stuff here. You know, repetition uh, regularly channels the mind in a specific direction. And thus, it, it allows certain new habits of thought to be ingrained in the mind. You know, and ingrained habits of thought can be formed by just repeating things alone. And it causes our behavior to change. You know, interestingly, there's a, a concept called uh, psycho-cybernetics. It's a big word, right? And the rationale behind it is that, you know, if, 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 if you repeat something, it trains uh, the individual to, to repeat 
particular affirmations um, regularly, and, and when they do that, there are actually changes in behaviors and mindset. For example, if, if, if you're struggling with some, if you're struggling with, 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 with insecurity and, and you tell yourself, you know what, I love myself unconditionally. It's not even important that the person believe what he or she is actually repeating, only that it be repeated. The inner mind is trained and will eventually respond by modifying behavior to confirm the affirmation. Are you with me right here? So you keep repeating those things to yourself. You're going to believe it and it's going to change your life. Isn't that amazing? So deep study involves repetition, which has a, a, a mind-blowing effect in changing the way you think and even the way you behave. You know, secondly, very important step in, in, in studying is, is concentration. If in addition to, to, to bringing the mind repeatedly to the subject, the person concentrates on what's being studied, learning is vastly increased. You know, concentration centers the mind. It focuses the attention on what is being studied. You know, unfortunately for us, we live in a culture here in Trinidad where, where, where you know, concentration is, is not of great value. Distraction is the order of the day. You know, many people, for example, go through all the activities of the day and the evening with the radio on. You know, they, they, they can't function without the radio on. You know, some people have this ability, they can read a book and watch the TV at the same time. You know, my children, for example, I mean, they are able to watch movies, play games, and talk to their friends all at the same time on the same, app, on the same device. Amazing. <laughs> We function with such distraction that concentration is almost unnecessary or not a regular part of our lives. You know, many people find it virtually impossible to go through an entire day focusing on one single thing. That's where we are. But when we are not repeatedly focusing the mind in a particular direction or centering our attention on the subject, you know, we're not going to allow ourselves to reach that new level that concentrated study will allow. You know, thirdly, comprehension. Very important step in, 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 in the discipline of study. You know, Jesus, as you remember, uh, reminds us that it's, it's, it's not just the truth, but the knowledge of the truth that will set you free. Are you with me right here? You know, and comprehension focuses on the knowledge of the truth. You know, all of us have, have, have had that experience sometimes when we're reading something over and over and over and over and over. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it finally makes sense to us. We finally understand what, what it means. We have that eureka moment, if you will, where we experience understanding and it catapults us into a new level of growth and freedom. You know, I remember... I had this math teacher in university, boy, and he teaching us this question, and he, he, he wrote on the whole board. The board was about three blocks um, long, and he wrote one mathematics sum, and when he was finished, he said, you know, it took him 17 years <laughs> to get out that sum. But that teacher of mine was so inspired. I mean, he stuck with that for 17 years, and it just, you know spoke to, to, to his level of, of appreciation for what he was doing, his commitment to mathematics. 
And I'm sure that, you know, that, that desire to comprehend what he was doing for all that time made him such a great teacher. You know, one further step is needed in, in study. And this fourth step is called reflection. Very important step. You know, although uh, comprehension defines what we are studying, reflection uh, defines the significance of what we're studying. You know, reflection brings us to see things from, from God's perspective. In reflection, we come to understand not only uh, the subject matter, but we, we come to understand ourselves. You know, study simply cannot happen until we are willing to become the subject matter of the study. Are you with me right here? We must submit to the system. We must come as a student and learn to reflect on what the teacher is teaching us. You know, when we study a book in the Bible, we're seeking or we should be seeking to be controlled by the intent of the author. We are determined to hear what the author or God is saying to us and not what we want to say to him. Are you with me right here? We want a life-transforming truth, not just good feelings from God's word. So we need to be able to reflect on what he's saying to us. If we are willing to, to pay the price to focus until the meaning is clear, I believe that this process of study will revolutionize our very lives. You know, daily devotional reading is certainly commendable, but it is not study. Anyone who is after a little word from God for today is not interested in the discipline of study, dare I say. You know, uh, uh, the author of the book, and I just want to read a little excerpt of, of what he actually said. He said, much of our Bible reading is fragmentary and sporadic. I actually have known students who have taken Bible courses and never even read as a whole the book being studied. Consider taking a major book of the Bible like Genesis or Jeremiah and read it straight through. Notice the structure and the flow of the book. Note the areas of difficulty and return to them later. Jot down thoughts and impressions. Sometimes it is wise to combine the study of the Bible with, a, with the study of some great devotional classic. He says such retreat experiences can transform your life. You know, uh, from the author, he says, you know, it, this is going to take some more depth than just, you know, picking out a little bit. It is deep study. It is going back. It is jotting down notes. It's a deeper commitment to the word of God. Are you with me right here? You know, interestingly... There is also study that does not come from the books. There's study that doesn't come from books. There's study of, 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 of nature and of human relationships, which I'll share a little bit about right now. You know, this may be the least recognized, but perhaps the most important field of study, the observation of, of, of reality in things, the observation of events and actions. You know, and the easiest place to start is with nature. You know, it is not difficult to see that the created order that God has made has many, many things to teach us. You know, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55 and verse 12, it says, The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. 
You know, the handiwork of the creator can speak to us and teach us if we will listen. And so the first step in the study of nature is, is, is reverent observation. We got to take time and really spend with nature. You know, a leaf can speak of the order and variety and, and complexity and symmetry that God alone could create. You know, very recently I, 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 you know, we, we got some plants at home here and, and we had the opportunity to plant them on, on Saturday morning. And I have a little lime tree. I have a little orange tree. I have a grapefruit plant. I have a zaboka plant. I had a plant there, a sticker planting. You know, I have a series, um, sorry, a West Indian cherry tree. And I mean, I've been, I've been, you know, looking after these plants for the last few days, wetting them in the morning, going to check the leaves because we have a batch up problem. And I, I'm just, every time I look at them, there's something new. And it just really blows my mind and tells me just how amazing God really is in his creation. And I believe I'm learning so much from nature and watching the bachaks and dealing with them and, 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 you know, observing. There's so much to learn from God. There's so much we can learn from God, from nature. You know, secondly, human relationships, you know, we can learn so much from those. You know, if we will observe uh, the relationships that go on between human beings, we will receive a great level of education. <laughs> you know, we got to watch, for example, how, how much of our speech is aimed at justifying our actions. That's a deep thought. How much of our speech sometimes is aimed at justifying our actions? You know, we may find it almost impossible to act and allow the act that we did to speak for itself. Instead, sometimes we feel we need to explain what we did and justify what we did and, and demonstrate the rightness of what we did to someone else. But why do we feel this compulsion to set the record straight? You know, lots of times it's, it's, it's because of our own pride and our own fear and our own, you know, insecurity about our, our reputation. We need to make sure people feel like, you know, we're something and, and, and we're awesome and we can think and we can deliver. And, and, and that's why we do that stuff. And it's, it's important to kind of be honest about who we are. And I, I see some of this in, in, in my own character and I'm able to share that with you this morning. Now, I believe that the study of human relationships will benefit us as we make ourselves the principal subject of the study. We should become attentive to the ordinary relationships we encounter throughout the day. If you're at home, if you're at work, if you're at school. And, and we, we will notice uh, things that will control people. And remember, when we're observing these things, we're not trying to condemn or judge anyone. We're only trying to learn about ourselves. But when we see human relationships, we, 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 could, we could, you know, relate sometimes to some of the things that we see. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the principal objects of our study should be ourselves. You know, we should learn uh, the things that control us. We've got to observe our inner feelings and our mood swings. You know, what are the things that controls our moods? You know, why do we like uh, certain people and dislike other people? You know, uh, uh, what do these things teach us about ourselves? You know, in doing all this, we're not trying to be amateur psychologists or sociologists, nor are we to be obsessed with excessive introspection. We're not trying to sit on and study, oh, you know, me, why so badly off and all of this. But it's, it's important to, to have a peer into who you are. 
You know, we study these matters with a spirit of humility and needing a large dose of grace. Are you with me right here? We only want to know thyself, as, as Socrates would have said. <clears throat> and through God's Holy Spirit, we're expecting uh, Jesus to be our living and ever-present teacher to take us through what we are to face and what we may see and what we need to learn in this walk with God. You know, study is important. It produces joy, you know, and like, like any novice, we will, we will find it hard to do at the beginning. But the greater our proficiency and the greater our, our, our joy, you know, will come as we spend time doing it. You know, as, as one writer, Alexander Pope says, there is no study that is not capable of delighting us after a little application to it. You know, study is well worth our most serious effort. And I pray that, you know, we will embrace study as a vehicle to draw us nearer to God, to change our thinking and our behavior and our actions. You know, secondly today, I want to share a little bit about the discipline of simplicity. You know, it has been said... That simplicity is, is freedom uh, from, from bondage. Are you with me here? Simplicity is, is a freedom from bondage. Simplicity can bring joy and balance to our lives. And that's something I believe that we, we, we all must, must yearn for. And simplicity is an amazing vehicle to get us there. You know, the Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that, that needs to be built or a, a way of thinking that's generated internally and then it, it, it outward, outwardly uh, drives us to have a particular type of lifestyle. So it begins on the inside. Are you with me right here? You know, both the inward and the outward aspects of simplicity are essential. To attempt to, 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 to have an outward lifestyle of simplicity without an inward appreciation of God's expectation, you know, you're going to run into some problems. You know, simplicity begins with an inward focus and a unity with God and his word. You know, I believe that experiencing the inner changes will liberate us outwardly because our speech when we when we when we deal with the internal changes will will become truthful and honest you know the lust that we have in our in our in our lives sometimes for for status and position will be gone because we no longer need status and position to 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 satisfy us we cease from from being uh, showy and extravagant, not on the grounds of, of not being able to afford it, but on the grounds of, of, of our principles and our mindset being changed. You know, our possessions, the things that we have, the things that we may be able to accumulate or afford can become available to other people and not the subject of hoarding or, or just keeping things from ourselves, uh, for ourselves, sorry. You know, our culture today lacks both the inward reality that we need to seek about simplicity 
and it lacks also the outward lifestyle of simplicity. And we could be trapped in a maze of, of, of competing attachments. We, we need to have this and we need to have that and we need to have that. And without those things, our, life are, our lives are incomplete. You know, one moment, sometimes we make decisions on the basis of some reason. And the next moment, out of fear about what other people will think of us, our brain starts to go somewhere else. And if we have no divine center, our need for security can lead us into an attachment to things. You know, we really must understand and appreciate that the lust for wealth in today's society is, is, can affect our minds can affect the way that we think, the way that we view things, the way that we, we treat people, you know. Uh, there are people out there that, that, that buy things that they don't really want, but they buy them to impress other people who they may not even like. Are you with me right here? You know, we may, we may, we may feel ashamed to wear clothes or, or to drive cars until they are worn out. You know, it's it's okay if you if you have a a a a, a jersey that's that's worn out. I mean, I have plenty of them. My wife tells me about them, you know, lots of times. You know, I I I may be on the other extreme with this, <laughs> but it's okay to have stuff that's worn out. You know, the mass media have convinced us that you know to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step. With reality, and we've got to recognize how unbalanced our culture has become. And if we don't, it's going to be difficult to embrace what God is leading us to, which is a Christian simplicity. You know, the psychosis of, of, of our value systems are even affected to the point where, you know, when we look at movies, the things that we, we, we embrace and the things that, that, that we feel are right and best, you know, uh, the modern, the modern hero of today is is a poor boy who purposefully becomes rich rather than the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor to the benefit of others perhaps you know covetousness we call ambition in today's society you know we call hoarding keeping things for ourselves and accumulating and accumulating and accumulating we call that prudence <laughs> That's where we are in society. We call greed industry. And I believe, you know, as, as, as people, as, as, as disciples, we need to take exception to the pattern that defines uh, people by how much money they make or how much they, they can produce. You know, and the Bible has a lot to say about simplicity. Sometimes it is felt that our response to wealth is an, is an individual matter. But Jesus really has a lot to say about it. The Bible has a lot to say about simplicity. You know, Jesus took uh, the time to address some real practical economic questions. And the Bible has a lot to say against things like exploitation of the poor and, and, and the very accumulation of wealth that many of us may seek. The Bible challenges nearly every economic value of today's society. You know, uh, a friend of mine and I, we, we were speaking about, you know, just, just trends worldwide where, where, where housing 
costs are going up tremendously and 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 it it you know for people to be able to get onto the property ladder it just seems to be you know more elusive you know it's it's you you just expect it to work harder and the price of housing going up all over the world not just in Trinidad but different places too you know but but when you look at what the scriptures have to say about about that stuff it's it's just amazing how God's plan always makes sense even from the beginning in the Bible, in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, it says, it suggests that the earth belongs to God. Yeah? In verse 23, it says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. Mine meaning God's, right? And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. You know, the Old Testament legislation of the year of Jubilee stipulated that all land was to revert back to its original owner. In fact, the Bible declares that wealth itself belongs to God. And one purpose of the year of Jubilee was to provide a regular redistribution of wealth. So it goes back to the people, it changes hands so that everybody could get a share. You know, had Israel faithfully observed the Jubilee, it would have dealt with, uh, you know, this perennial problem of the rich becoming richer and the poor becoming poor. That was God's plan. To make sure that this does not happen, the redistribution of wealth. But that's what the Bible has to say about it. But what do we see lived out in today's world? We see that gap developing. You know, Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day and dare I say he declares war on the materialism of today are you with me right here you know the Aramic term for wealth is mammon and Jesus condemns uh, condemns it as a rival God Jesus describes you know that pursuit of mammon as a rival God you know, the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You know, he speaks frequently and unambiguously about economic issues. You know, in Luke chapter 6 and verses uh, 20 and 24, he says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then he says, in verse 24, he says, Woe to you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. You know, he even, you know, graphically depicts the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God. You know, he says, you know, he says, you know, um, it, the wealthy entering the kingdom of God would be like a, a, in a camel walking through the eye of a needle. You know, Jesus saw the grip that wealth can have on a person. He knew that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which is precisely why I believe he commanded his followers. He said to them in, in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 21, it says, you know, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth because that's where your heart would be if that's what you're doing you know when he had a conversation with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 he exhorted the the rich young ruler not just to have an inner attitude of detachment from his possessions but he literally told this guy 
to get rid of his possessions if he wanted to be in the kingdom of God. You know, in Luke 12 and verse 15, he says, Take heed and be aware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, he counseled people who came seeking God. He said to them, you know, in Luke 12, uh, in verse 33, it says, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. And treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. He told the parable of the rich farmer whose life centered around hoarding, we would call him prudent, but Jesus calls him a fool. You know, he states that if we really want to enter the kingdom of God, we must be like the merchants searching for for fine pearls and be willing to sell everything we have to get it in Matthew 13, 45-46. He calls all who would follow him to a joyful, carefree, unconcerned for possessions. Where he says in Luke 30, uh, Luke uh, chapter 6 and verse 30, Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Woo! Imagine that. <laughs> I come and take your thing, and you're watching him walking off with it, and you're telling yourself, what you want to do is grab him by the neck, and take it back. And Jesus is saying, don't demand it back. But we get that hard. You know, Jesus speaks to the question of economics more than any other single social issue. Down to the epistles talk about, you know, Paul says, you know, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a sneer, into many senseless and, and hurtful desires that plunge them into ruin. First Timothy 6 and verse 9. You know, in in James chapter 4, the Bible says you desire and you do not have, so you kill and you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and wage war. You know, families are broken apart because somebody in the family won the land and and the ham and the jam. And they're willing to kill even siblings for it. We've heard it on the news where family killing the family for land. And that's what happens with desire for things. You know, God in his word lists greed alongside adultery and thievery and says those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, Paul counsels the wealthy to not trust in your wealth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 17 to 19, he says, but to share generously with others. You know, we've got to build a faith that as we work and we live and we love God, that he will provide for us. You know, descriptions of abundant material provision by God is rampant over the scriptures. The scriptures talk about how God is able to take care of us, how he meets our needs, and how he's he's able to provision us with all that we need. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 to 9, it suggests, you know, for the Lord, the God is bringing you into a good land. A land in which you will lack nothing. God says, you know, when I bring you somewhere, there is nothing that you will lack, brother. You're going to have everything you need. 
And we need to remain clear that it is God who provides us with the things that we have. You know, Deuteronomy in, in chapter 8, verse, verse 17, it says, Beware lest you say in your heart that my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. You know, sometimes we can sit down and, and puff ourselves up with our, 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 our master's degrees and, 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 and our abilities with our hands. And, and, and we say, you know, we've done so well because we've done so well because we're awesome. We've got to remember and be clear in our minds that the things that we are able to do, it's because of God. You know, the spiritual discipline of simplicity provides perspective and can also free us from anxiety. Because I believe that lots of times the issue that we have in our, our hearts and in our lives is born out of an anxiety. Anxiety, we anxious, we study courts, we study in this, then what we go eat, then we go I mean, this is not a recipe for laziness and sit down and do nothing. But God is able to provide for us. Are you with me right here? And freedom from anxiety, I believe, can be characterized by, by three inner attitudes, which I'll share. First of all, we've got to embrace the fact that what we have received is a gift. We may go to work, but we know that it's not all work that gives us what we have. You know, we live by grace even when it comes to our daily bread. You know, we are dependent on God for the simplest elements in our lives. The air we breathe, <laughs> the water we drink, the sunlight that warms us. Who provides those things? It is God. Without them, there would be no need for work because we'd be all dead. Are you with me right here? You know, when we are tempted to think that, that, that what we own is as a result of our, our personal efforts, it takes only a little drought or a small accident in our lives to show us once again how utterly dependent we are on God for everything. You get me? You know, secondly, what we have is to be cared for by God. So whatever has been given to us, it is to be cared for by God. God is able to protect what we possess. We can trust it with what we have. Are you with me right here? Does that mean that we should never take the keys out of the car and door lock the door when we, when we walk in? No, of course not. But we know that the lock on the door is not what protects the house. It is only common sense to take the normal precautions. But if we believe that precaution itself is what protects us and our possessions then we will be riddled with anxiety. We're going to get the, the toughest locks, the biggest burglar proofing, the baddest dogs and everything else. If that's what we believe. But there is simply no such thing as, as burglar proof precaution. And this is not, this, 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 this mentality is not restricted to, to possessions alone. You know, they affect such things as, as our reputations and, and our employment. You know, do we trust God? to take care of our, our, our reputation and to take care of our employment? Are we placing faith in God that he has our back and our front and our sides and every part of us where these things are concerned? You know, simplicity means the freedom that comes your way because you trust God for these and all things. You know, thirdly, if what we have is available to others, 
then we will possess a freedom from anxiety. We've got to share what we have. If our possessions are not available to other people, then there's going to be anxiety and that simplicity of living will be at risk. You know, the reason we find it so difficult to share the things we have is out of fear of our future. Out of fear of our future. We're afraid of giving everything else and, and, and we give somebody, they benefit and we die, right? I mean, there are so many examples of, 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 of giving even when it hurts in the Bible. And we've seen where God would have taken care of, of, of the widow who, who gave all she had to live on and, 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 and the mother who gave all, all they had to eat for the sake of a prophet. And God was able to take, to take care of them. You know, we cling to our possessions rather than sharing them because we are anxious about tomorrow. But I believe that if we, if we truly believe God is the man who Jesus says he is, is the God that, that Jesus says he is, then we don't need to be afraid. When we come to, to see God as the almighty creator and our, our living father, we can share because we know that he will care for us. When we see God this way, we will be able to embrace the discipline of simplicity. You know, may God give you and me the courage and the wisdom and the strength always to hold his kingdom as the number one priority in our lives so that we can embrace this life of simplicity. You know, I pray that you have been encouraged today to seek these two disciplines of study and simplicity because I believe that they are vehicles to draw us nearer to God and to deepen our relationship with him and to deepen our relationships with each other for the glory of God and to change our world to further glory our father in heaven thank you for spending this time with us it's been a great time we look forward to our third installment next week God bless you all Amen.